Welcome to Hoof and Horn, a pagan podcast with T-Rex and Braxis Mudai, where we talk about witchcraft, paganism, music, the occult, and whatever else we want.
So here we are. Our number ones. Part three. I thought we'd never fucking get, get here. Fucking tired of this whole topic. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not only that, but <clears throat> a little secret that we tried doing Tamara's number one several times, and there was just the dogs and the cat and. The computer deleted it, Holy made it, shit. so I'm gonna talk to myself on my own later on. That'll be fun. So it's been a, a long, strange trip to this yeah. point. But we also got to figure out the. I feel like the app and the program, the best way to record it and not have to have anyone else with us where we have to say to them, Sorry, we deleted that. We screwed it up. Let's do it again. And then finding so. out that the microphone can pick up a mouse's fart. <laughs> And the crinkling of your combos bag mm-hmm. sounds like... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, talking about the microphone, listening back on this, I realized that uh, my number four is Evil Dead. And I think in there somewhere at the end, I said, okay, that's mine, Army of Darkness. And that's I not what I'm... I did I did say that. Okay. But I just want to reiterate that we were talking about the trilogy <laughs> and it was just fresh in my mind. My number four was Evil Dead. So we just heard some music. Yes, we did. By a band called Black Market Vinyl. With a song called Love is a Dog from Hell. I like that one. Yeah, me too. Uh, they got kind of a... I mean, if you listen to the whole album, what are they got? Kind of a folky, darker rockabilly yeah. type. Google said it was neo-folk. <laughs> is that a thing? Apparently. That's <laughs> the genre. Because it's not really folk, and it's not rockbilly, and it's not, so I guess it's neo-folk. They're pretty cool. Yeah, I like a lot of their songs. Blackmarketvinyl.com. Facebook. Spotify. Other things. Uh, was it CD, CD Baby? Also? Yes, so you can buy the buy the tracks or the whole album on CD Baby. And you can only do that till the end of March, because apparently we just discovered that CD Baby's going bye-bye, at least in that function. So get it while you can, kids. And I want to thank all these bands who are letting us use their music, for sure. All right. Drum roll, please. Yes, so I guess we're going to go with me first, since you've got to re-record your whole yeah. thing there. That'll be cool. So, my number one pick (laughs) falls again on the weird spectrum, I suppose, is Donnie Darko. Um, If you haven't seen the movie, it's about a kid who has some emotional problems. He's probably... Some? Yeah. (laughs) He is an emotional problem. He's (laughs) probably what you would label schizophrenic. I'm guessing. You think so? That's just mine. No, it makes me nervous and anxious again. Another one of my, your movies that makes me anxious, and I, I scrubbed some of it in my brain, apparently. But rewatched it and dealt with my, the scariness of it to me. The dog is drinking water right now. <laughs> that is not one of us. Um, a crazy thing about Donnie Darko is I feel like it's almost uh... Let's just wait for the dog to stop drinking. (laughs) 
So he's definitely got some some sort of problems for sure. He's yeah. sleepwalking. He's waking up in weird places. And it starts out. It, it does say the sister says something about being on medication. So mm-hmm. he's under someone's care and seeing a therapist. Medicated. Yeah. And it's kind of just his journey through, I guess, his own. Mental illness? A dreamlike state. <laughs> mental. He might not. Maybe he doesn't. I don't. That was just kind of my... Well, he's I, definitely having a hard time dealing with right, the world something. around him. And sometimes I think when people are having experiences that are maybe otherworldly or psychic and, and a society doesn't understand it, we label that as crazy and then we try to medicate it away. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Uh, that's something I saw in there was that yes he's struggling yes he's being medicated but he finds a resource that starts to be able to help him mm-hmm. figure out what's going on and it isn't you know Zoloft or whatever you know and it's probably every kid's you know time through adolescence that all these things you know kind of yeah well if definitely he's schizophrenic you getting up there around the 20s it's usually when it pops out mm-hmm so it's about him going through this whole dreamlike state of this uh, giant bunny rabbit that he's talking to, and it's his name is Frank, <laughs> and uh, he's kind of leading him through his life at school, uh, his life with his family, uh, his life with other people around him. I thought it was a great movie just because it really plays well in between the reality and the dream state. And I've noticed that a lot of my movies that I like are either have a lot of drug use in them or have a lot of dream. You know, Brazil was also that's his true. dream thing. There's a lot right? of dream parts, and that's, that's true. I didn't right. think about that. Uh, Midsommar had a lot of drugs going on in there. But that's just me. Um, some of my favorite things about the movie were Frank, who is a giant bunny rabbit. A scary bunny rabbit. His voice is so awesome. Oh, that's what makes me want to hide under a pillow. That mm-hmm. weird effect that they put on. Wake up. Mm-hmm. Get up. Ooh, so great. So creepy. So, great. so you see him dealing with what's going on with at school. And there's, there's this guy who's appeared in this town in their town, played by Patrick Swayze, <laughs> who did an excellent job, yeah. uh, named Jim Cunningham. And he has this whole theory that there's only two things on the spectrum of emotions, fear or love. And so the whole schools, you know, all the teachers and everything are trying to jam this kind of down their throats, the student body. And I think that's kind of a catalyst to him you know, seeing Frank a lot more and dealing with all the things that are going on with him. I feel like in the beginning of the movie, Donnie is not very... doesn't see the point, and everybody's kind of an asshole. You know, everybody's kind doesn't of see a... the point of what? World? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. But I think as the movie goes on, he kind of falls in love with this new girl... And they start going together, and they're boyfriend and girlfriend. And I think through him 
finding this love for her, he kind of opens his heart to the rest of mm-hmm. the world, which kind of climax in the end. But yeah. go ahead. So I wonder if then, <coughs> you know, he got very mad at uh, Cunningham. What's his first name? Jim. Jim Cunningham mm-hmm. about the whole fear and love. Mm-hmm. But it's love that unlocked things for him. True. Is he in fear all the time? It's an, utterly, an angry kind of fear, you know? But it's just interesting. I don't think that there is only fear and love, but yeah, there's even a really part where like he tells against that, and it's interesting that his, feel, his feelings for Gretchen. He tells one of the teachers that you just can't lump human emotions into two things, and there's a whole spectrum of emotions, mm-hmm. and they have to read these examples off this card and mark where it is on the spectrum of fear and love, and he ends up telling her to shove it up her ass and ends up in the principal's office over it but yeah he's definitely defiant on the idea that there's only two things to go by this fear and love uh so i'm just going to go through and kind of now that we've got the story a little bit out of the way a little bit i guess one of one of my favorite things in it is it's during halloween which is awesome right a whole month of october is pretty much this movie and there's At the a, end of the world approaching. And there's a point where him and his girlfriend go to two matinees that are being played back to back, and one of them is Evil Dead. <laughs> and the other one, which I think is very telling, is The Last Temptation of Christ. Okay. I feel like Donnie kind of becomes this self-sacrificing... Um, embodiment, I guess, that he has to put himself in a situation where he knows he's going to die, but it's going to save the rest of, you know, the the universe. Let me say that if you watch this movie uh, in the director's cut, it, there's a book in this that's called The Philosophy of Time Travel. And it doesn't go into it very much unless you get the, the DVD with the director's cut, I believe. But it shows actual pages from the book, so you can kind of read this Roberta Sparrow, who wrote the book, who was a teacher at the school, but then retired, and is now old as shit, and just walks from her house to her mailbox every single day, over and over and over again. People have almost hit her numerous times, and he, he almost can't believe when he finds out that it was her that wrote it. But it has those pages in there and and chapters, and it's not very long at all, but it kind of lays out. If you were to read that before you watch the movie, I think that it would kind of explain a lot of stuff. So I'm going to try to attempt to do my best version of that. Um, It talks about a primary universe, which would be the main universe, and then a tangent universe that somehow appears... And usually in the tangent universe, it doesn't last for very long. Um, And there's a receiver who ends up usually getting superpowers, being able to uh, manipulate water, fire, uh, telekinesis, super strength. So in it, a jet engine in the very beginning falls out of the sky. Nobody knows where it came from and it lands in Donnie's room but because he's been seeing this Frank guy who tells him to come out of the house, he's been waking up off golf courses and on hilltops and stuff. 
And so I think that that's called the artifact. And it's this strange artifact that kind of changes everything into this tangent universe. And Donnie knows that kind of that there's only, you know, it's a, it's not going to last very long. And I think that when the rabbit, Frank, is telling him that it's the end of the world and he gives him a certain amount of days an hour, I think it's 28 days, mm. six, six hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds, oh. I think. Yeah. Watch this a couple of times. Yeah, I have, man. <laughs> Just to try to figure it out. Right. Um, so he's trying to, in the tangent universe, it the end of that is it turning into a black hole and everyone dying. So he really feels this impending doom that everything is going to be destroyed at the end of it. Yeah. I feel like um, the last temptation of Christ is kind of relevant because he ends up deciding to make this self-sacrifice of himself because in the end when things switch back over to the primary universe he's in his bed and he's guided this jet engine with telekinesis to still land in his bed but he dies this time and and so it cancels out the tangent universe and lets the primary universe keep on going so in that he's kind of a self-sacrificing So then you're saying that part of the movie, do we start out in the primary universe and then go to that tangent universe? As soon as that engine breaks off from the jet and and it goes through this kind of time tunnel. Yeah, that happens at the end. That happens at the beginning, too. We only see it fall. Right. But at that thing was happening. Right, yeah. what they're telling us. Okay. So it's him trying to fix that. He doesn't really know what he's... I don't think so when, as the movie goes in the beginning, I don't think he's really realizing all of this, right. but it just kind of comes to light as uh, the movie progresses. He gets little hints here and there and everywhere. Um, something that I loved about it was it's definitely about time travel and all, there's a lot of editing through all the shots where things speed up and slow down mm-hmm. and it kind of does that, the word I like, discombobulates your you know thinking or how you would normally watch a movie. Yeah. It's like the Donnie Darko version of The Matrix when there'd be that glitch mm-hmm. and then something in The Matrix twitched or switched or mm-hmm. changed. Mm-hmm. The slowing and the picking up again. Yeah. Uh, Drew Barrymore is also in that. Plays a teacher. She does an excellent job. Uh, they're reading... I, I just realized this, but they're reading Grand Greens, The Destructors, in her class. And his birthday is October 2nd, and that's when all of this began. It's not the same year, obviously, but I think it's 1988 that this is supposed to take place. But I think the movie came out in 2001. Okay. Maybe it's a significant year of the director or the writer or something. I don't know. What, 88? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Who else is in this? And probably take you a minute to figure to realize it I guess or it didn't me uh, Seth Rogen is in there yes it wasn't until this last time that I watched it again in a day to to see I didn't maybe because it's been such a long time since I saw it that I didn't recognize I didn't know Seth Rogen you know but now you, he's sitting in there and he's kind of a jerk off as Seth Rogen normally is right 
and Noah Wiley is in it from the, all of us who are old. There we go. I couldn't think of his name. I wanted to yeah, say that from too. From ER. The father is somebody too that I've seen in other movies, which he did yeah. a great job. I loved him in the, uh, his whole too. family I've did good. I've seen the mom in tons of things. Uh, Donnie Darko is played by Jake Gyllenhaal and his Gyllenhaal, sorry, yeah. and his sister is also in this. Maggie. Maggie, mm-hmm. and they do a great job, probably because they are actually brother right. and sister, uh, interacting with each other. And that little girl, their little sister, mm-hmm. I recognized from a few years later. She was in Big Love as one of the, you know, the girls from the from the Mormon compound who, like, has to marry the prophet. And she's such a pain oh, in the wow. ass. But beautiful girl. But she, yeah, she's in that, too. Uh, getting back to the, you know, the, the Christ aspect or Christ figure of this is, I feel like Jen, Jim Cunningham... At one point, Donnie calls him the Antichrist in front mm. of the whole school. <laughs> yeah. And later on in the movie, you figure out that he has this den of pedophile material. Yeah. So he's definitely evil. So I feel like the, the, that's a little relation to the devil, Jesus. maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And then the Asian girl in it is very innocent through the whole thing and there's a part where they put on uh, like a school talent show yeah. and she plays an angel during that yeah. and I think it's just kind of setting up those two um, ideas of heaven and hell juxtaposed and he's yeah. in the middle of this thing and it, it's not it's not huge but it, but it's there also Christ was supposedly uh, tempted three times by the devil, and I noticed that Jen Cunningham, when Donnie Darko calls him the Antichrist, kind of talks about him giving in to drugs, alcohol, and premarital sex. He mentions mm-hmm. those three things, and I think that's kind of uh, the three temptations. Now, Donnie goes through all those things and makes it out on the other side, but I mean, I don't know who hasn't you know, <laughs> been in that. <clears throat> but I just noticed that this time around that it was these three things. Um, and also, him sacrificing himself ends up, you know, saving the innocent people in it. And the majority of them are innocent, but right. if Patrick Swayze is really right. a pedophile, right. he didn't save two. Most which of the is school crazy to me. Is, is probably innocent um, to, to <laughs> yeah. some degree. No one's truly yeah. innocent, but. Yeah. And also that he's kind of fulfilling this prophecy. Um, he's prophecy kinda, of? Um, the book. You know, the, the tangent the universe book. and the yeah. receivers. And there's a thing in there called the manipulated dead. So uh, that would be Frank and his girlfriend Gretchen end mm-hmm. up you know, dying in that. And then there's the manipulated living who are always trying to kind of help him along the way. And I don't think they realize it, but... The teachers, both Drew, Mer- Drew Barrymore and Noah Wiley, yes, uh, you know, kind of give him clues and are at least willing to give him advice in it. And yeah. I feel like they're the manipulated living in that. Professor Kennedy was Noah Wiley. I don't know what Drew Barrymore's name was on this. Uh, one thing I 
also liked about this movie is it had a reference to Smurfs in it. If you guys have heard my <laughs> other episodes, I, I had a few things to say about the Smurfs. You did have a few interesting things to say about the Smurfs and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, he's with his two buddies, two high school buddies, and they're out you know, drinking and shooting cans and stuff. <clears throat> which he has awesome aim, by the way. I don't know if anybody's noticing that, but he shoots every single one of those, which I think falls into, and we'll get more into it, but the superpower mm. element of things. Uh, but that he has this huge debate with them about where Smurfette came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize it either, but Gargamel actually made Smurfette. So they were all boys to begin with. Or I guess they got to be, if she's Smurfette, I guess they've got to be boys, male. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I didn't realize that that's where she came from, and that's probably why there's only one of them there. But they go into a big thing about that. And. Donnie Darko is kind of a genius. I mean, there's a part in there where they talk about how he, you know, made it through his test scores with flying colors of, yeah. you know, to get into some college or whatever. And his sister got accepted to Harvard. Yeah. So, that you know, they're, they're smarts. Um, a, a lot that you get from the movie, I feel like, is that destruction can become a, a creative act. In it, there's a part where he, with his superpowers, takes an axe to the water main of the school and floods the school, so it reverts back to that power of over water. And another time, he finds out where Jim Cunningham lives, so he yeah. burns his house down, having... <laughs> to the ground. Right, the manipulation of fire as well. And there's a point where he shoves, throws the axe into a giant bulldog as their mascot of the school and he lands it right into the forehead of this bronze statue and it would take some serious strength to get it to uh -huh. stick in there. Uh, also, the soundtrack. Can we talk about the soundtrack? I was wondering if you were going to talk about the soundtrack. The soundtrack to this is Let's just talk about the soundtrack. amazing. Uh, Tears for Fears is in it. Yeah, at least twice. I think... Is it Echo and the Bundy Man? Are in time? it? Yeah. Uh, and maybe the church is in it too. Did you do research? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I bet just... you we can look up Donnie Darko's soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I've always had a, a liking for Tears for Fears and. Yeah. Mad World and um, Head Over Heel, Heels. Uh, yeah, and I found out Mad World isn't. I mean, you'll know this by listening to it, but it's not performed by Tears for Fears. It's performed by somebody else, a solo artist, I believe. Uh, uh, in this, we, me and you have talked about dreams before, and we're in a house where I'll have a dream about a house that I've never seen before in my memory. And you were saying, and maybe you can go into this a little bit more about what the house represents. Right. The house is like your psyche. And so the main living floor of the house that you're in is sort of like your your id, you know, the, the id of, of your psyche. And, and any upstairs rooms that you're in is more your ego, the basements of houses or your shadow, you know, your shadow self. So it's these Jungian concepts depicted by a house and even when we think about the houses that we live in 
we do our living, you know, our, usually our kitchens, the things that feed us, you know, you have to go to the bathroom most of the time and you're finding these things on the main floor. Your living rooms are on the main floor. But when we, in, in houses where there are bedrooms, if it's too level, those bedrooms are, are upstairs. That's the dream time space. It's the astrals where we travel. And then majority of houses will have, you know, a basement of some type. Um, where we put things that we store that we always don't want to look at all the time. So, houses, idea of, this, of the psyche. Well, if you notice in the beginning, the rabbit, wake up. And then he beckons him out of the house. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like he's Ooh, leaving his own... Fucking rabbit, man. I just got a shiver down the right half of my body. I don't know what's happening on the left. <laughs> So Donnie goes out, and I feel like he's leaving his own psyche, you know, yeah. to, to kind of, yeah. albeit an apocalyptic perspective, he's getting a definite new way of thinking, yeah. I think, through leaving the house. I, I, that just came to me last time I, I watched it, actually. I feel like Donnie's kind of the embodiment of adolescence, and he, the adult world is kind of a, uh, a dumbed-down consciousness. You know, everything's very superficial and mm-hmm. no one wants to dig deeper into things. And that's kind of where you're at in adolescence because the world's all new to you and stuff, I think. There's no inst- institutionalized any you know anything for you at that point except for school. But you, know, you have a fresh perspective on things. And then I think your consciousness or your way of thinking gets dumbed down by society mm-hmm. and religion. Beaten down, beaten yeah, out of you. Absolutely, right? absolutely. So Donnie is kind of a superhero in this, and he even makes reference. Uh, it's Gretchen who says, Donnie Darko, what kind of name is that? It sounds like a superhero. And then he says, who says I'm not? Mm. And this is before he's really even done anything. Right. Um, I think part of the movie is just showing the, the kind of destruction of the adult imperfect order, you know, uh, showing them, you know, from Jim Cunningham having that pedophile den or whatever. <laughs> and seeing a beloved Patrick Swayze like that. No, yeah. just start dancing with baby face. He did a great job. I wanted to ask you if you knew, does, did, does he have a limp? Did he have a limp? You told me that he fell off something one time in a photo. Uh, in ba- a in uh, Dirty Dancing, didn't he fall off of something? Well, he had, you know, he really is a, was a dancer, right, definitely, uh-huh. and he had issues with his knees, and that log scene in Dirty Dancing where they're, he's trying to teach baby balance, mm-hmm. and um, they're talking, and he's standing up on that log, and they're dancing. That's a body double for Jennifer Grey, but Patrick Swayze really did that, and the directors did not want him to be doing that, and of course, he fell, and he, and he fucked up his knees some more. Those, those jumps off the stage at the very end, he did a bunch of times to keep taking it, to do another take and another take, and I think he finally said, I only have one more in me. And he was, didn't do any real dance movies or anything like that with dance much after. So but that's the eight, end of the 80s. This is 2001. Mm-hmm. If he is walking with a limp... He and is, and not, he d- I didn't know if he did that for the character or if that's just the way he walks. I don't know. He'd ha- I, don't know. I, I'd have, I don't know. It's a cool little thing though I mean it makes his character stand out a little bit because he has this kind of limp and he's he's kind of playing the uh, who's the famous uh, T- 
Tim Robbins? Yes, He's very yes. Tim Robbins, weird, right. but weirder. But more about, not adults, but more about kids. Yeah, because they're that's playing, what makes it even more yeah, weird. Yeah, exactly. They're playing like videos of it yeah. during their classes and stuff. Typical of a, of a predator, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> oh, sorry, Patrick. <laughs> and I, I talked about Donnie kind of destroying this, you know, adult and perfect world or order or whatever, but I think it is for something better for them to all get a new perspective on it. Right. The rabbit in it, if, you, if you're into Easter eggs or whatever, um, there's a lot of rabbits thrown throughout in the backgrounds on people's shirts and stuff that I hadn't noticed that I kind of did over the process of watching it about a thousand times um, and and it also made me feel like the rabbit was like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland leading her through this dream world you know um, helping her through all these areas but not really explaining what's going on just that he's late for a date or whatever Right. so I feel like that's kind of um, a nod to that or could be taken that way because Frank right. is definitely magical definitely goes into you know that brings Alice into a different world her following that rabbit in her dream because if you watch the old Alice in Wonderland she does fall asleep while she's being read to and all of that is a trip into dream world which could also be fairy and so here he's calling him out of his house and he's calling him into this dreamlike state very interesting Ten million times creepier that rabbit. I got a problem with that rabbit. <laughs> I love that rabbit, and I love his voice. I mean, I, I almost pray at night that that's gonna happen to me to hear that happen. <laughs> of course My you God. do. Wouldn't that be awesome? No, oh, I do natural. not want to hear Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I hear Frank. I'm gouging my eardrums out. Drew Barrymore did an awesome scene in that where she gets fired and. <laughs> She, she just runs outside and basically yells fuck as loud as she can. Yeah. It was very Drew Barrymore yeah. of her. But it really, you really, she did a, a good job of catching the yeah. emotion of, of that. I saw that she was a producer of that movie. Oh yeah, I would, yeah. that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, let's see, is there anything else I want to say? I, I have questions. Yeah, let's, let's hit the questions. Frank. So I know... Yeah, in the beginning, he's been sleepwalking, right? Mm-hmm. But that airplane engine has not yet fallen. And the mother, because the mother tells him, where do you go at night? Mm-hmm. You know, so he's been doing this. Right. If that tangent universe hasn't... Happened yet. There, ha- where the hell has Frank been coming from? You know what I mean? Like that, I just don't... I feel like... Um, or is that the first time that... He hears Frank. Is yeah, that the because first it's, time? It, right. And he's just been sleepwalking because he's messed up? Yeah. I just was like, I wonder. The, he's also going to therapy, and so she's been giving him drugs. Yeah. So I think a lot okay, of that so plays maybe in. That is the first time he's heard Frank. Right. And I can't remember whether that. Well, it, it can't be because it destroys their house and they end up at a hotel after that. But yeah. I, I think the catalyst to pushing them into a tangent universe. I think the rabbit warns him about how many hours and days are left till the yeah. end of the world, <clears throat> and then the very next night or whatever is when this engine is, this artifact has fallen out of, you know, wherever to create this kind of tangent universe that's only going to last for a little while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
in the end of that, it shows all, once Donnie has come around to using, I, I believe it's telekinesis that he kind of uses to rip the engine and run it through some sort of time Like rip the phase. engine off the plane? Yeah, and guide it into his house where he is now going to be in the bed to hated, die. I hated that. Yeah. <laughs> Could I like a happy ending movie? And I guess in some ways it is, but, well, go ahead. Just that when it shows the end of that, it kind of runs through all the characters waking up in bed, like something yeah. startled them, but they don't know what it is. Um, in it, I guess we should go for... So, so there's some sort of remembrance of the tangent universe, even though Donnie has put it all right, right. by the end of it, there's still this because memory. Because the or beginning of the movie, the engine does fall. He's not there. He comes home on the bike, and everyone's like, "There's a whole emergency at his house that an airplane engine landed in his room." And then we go back to that scene, right? And so instead of like being like, ah, "Airplane engine landed in your room," it was airplane engine killed our son and our brother, and mm-hmm. now the family's not just hanging out. Maggie Gyllenhaal's face, that's really hard so for me good. to watch. And I know, knowing that they're siblings in real life, that probably wasn't very difficult for her to tap into. She's the one that looks definitely the most upset. She's really crying. The dad, not so much. The mom, standing there smoking by the tree. Mm-hmm. I, a mother of two sons. Mm-hmm. What you would, I'd be in, in a fucking ambulance. Like, you'd have to give me a tranquilizer if that happens. And I was weirded about about the way the mom is just like, maybe it's shock. I'm not going to judge any character's grief or anything, but the daughter looks more upset than the parents. Uh, I do know that the editor, or yeah, or the producer, whoever made the movie, I, I can't remember what it is. The his writer name or is. director? Yeah, the director, that's what I wanted to say. Um, had this weird moment where he was out somewhere and looked up into a hotel room window and there was some lady looking back at him and she just kind of waved at him and then disappeared and he just thought that was weird and so he kind of makes it kind of like that at the end there yeah where the the Gretchen waves the mom and the little kid like waves them I'm waving at no kid. My kid's dead. I don't fucking stand here by a tree smoking and waving right. at you, but okay. I guess that was a weird thing that he put in there. <laughs> what got me the first time when I was watching it was them sitting there watching the football game, and all of a sudden that thing comes out of his, this, this liquid-like... It reminds me of the thing from the abyss. Yeah, absolutely. It comes out of his chest, and Donnie's looking at it all weird... And then his dad goes, I think I'm going to go get a beer. And, and the follows he it. follows this yeah. thing around. And I, I think it's trying to play with that. What is, you know, is this your will? Is this free will? Is this, are things pre, yeah. predetermined, pre, preset into motion? Right. So, but when I saw that, I was like, what is happening right now? Because it was kind of a, a regular, I mean, a, a Frank was in it, of course, the rabbit. But things were somewhat of a normal movie until up to that point and that yeah. just I was like oh this is getting yeah. good man this I just wonder if is it like is our desire is, it, is that because he wants a beer mm-hmm. you know what I mean he wants to get up and like is that his right. desire well Donnie kind of calls will, it or? 
What does he call it? Uh, well, the channel of God, or God's channel. He kind of refers to it, to his teacher. Remember, his teacher says, I can't talk to you this about, yeah. about it anymore. Yeah, like get fired. Right. Because they're bringing up religion in school. Mm. So this grandma death lady who's in it is always walking back and forth to her oh. mailbox. And Donnie's been brought into this as a receiver into this tangent universe to, to make something happen. And it ends up at the end of the movie that he has finally written her a letter. And at the end, when the car swerves and kills his girlfriend, she's in the middle of the road reading that letter. So she's really just been going back and forth to figure, Wait, to that find letter? that letter, to be in that spot so that car could swerve, to hit his girlfriend, to force Donnie to do what he needs to do to change the tangent universe back into the primary universe. Ooh, and we, we didn't really mention this, but Frank, in real life, is actually his sister's boyfriend. And they don't show him through the entire movie until the very end when he's... Mm -hmm. uh, they show his car a couple times. It's in yeah. the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and I think they make reference to him going to get beer or something that's written on the refrigerator, maybe. Yes. Yes, it is. During the party. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, in it, there's a part where the car has to swerve out of the way to, from hitting Grandma Death. It runs over Gretchen. Frank gets out and he's wearing the exact same bunny suit that Donnie's seen him in this whole time. Um, and then Donnie takes out a gun and shoots him right in his eye. Which his eye was all messed up in the movie theater. And right, when, you know they, why. when they were in the movie theater, that's some great lines in there. When they go to watch Evil Dead and The Last Temptation, he's with his girlfriend, but his girlfriend falls asleep. And pretty soon it's just Donnie and the rabbit, and he's sitting there and they start talking. And Donnie says, why are you wearing that stupid rabbit suit? And Frank says, why are you wearing that stupid man suit? And I just thought that was awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but as he, he decides to show Donnie his face, takes off the rabbit mask, and his eye is all fucked up. Doesn't really mention why or how or whatever, but you figure that out at the end when he shoots him in the eye. And I think two of those things, that his girlfriend died and he's a murderer now, pushes him to the edge to have to go do what it is that he needs to do with yeah. the, you know, guiding the engine back into his bed and him yeah. being there. Because he's lost what he loved and he's, he's going to get punished for something. Right, so. right. And, and I think he's come to terms with it because at the end, it, he kind of narrates the letter that he had sent to Grandma Death or Roberta Sparrow. And at the end, it's like, I, I hope that you know, I'll, when I this is all over, I'll be able to sigh a great relief because there'll be so much more to look forward to. Mm -hmm. And I, that got me a little beclimped right there, just a little bit. That's okay. That's why it's your number one favorite. <clears throat> Word up. It makes you sad, though, for Donnie because you want him to, like, such a self-sacrificing thing. But you also like him a lot and you want more for him. Yeah, and I think you know? he comes to that realization because I think that he could have done all of that without him being in the bed. He could have guided yeah. that engine back down. He didn't I have to die. But I think that he was ready for something else. He was ready to look forward to so much more, I think. Right. I definitely uh, wouldn't have the same 
impact if he yeah, if he had lived for living, sure. So uh, it definitely drives home uh, who you are is determined by your choice of actions for sure. Yeah. And Frank Frank ends up being the one that basically well I think it's a combination between Frank and Grandma Death because if she wasn't sitting in the middle of the road reading mm-hmm. that letter it wouldn't have you know yeah but you, go ahead you pointed out something to me the other day with the Deuce Ex Machina you like the whole Ex Machina thing. I love that <laughs> love that because so many movies have that so many movie or and storylines it, it really literally means God and the machine. And it just means that the only way that this could have been resolved, any plot or actions between humans, was for some divine force or God to intervene. Mm-hmm. And so he does yell that when this is... Uh, we didn't go through that scene, but he... They're at a... His parents have gone... Okay, so he burns down the house of Jim Cunningham, which makes it so his mom has to take his sister to this competition that they had won in the school talent yeah. show. That is a yeah. great scene. You know, like Star Search or something. So <laughs> fucking great where they're doing uh, Duran Duran Notorious. How the hell did we forget about that? Oh, I got the whole entire song okay. list now. Okay, well, that, that song's going on. His sister is doing some little, you know, Sparkle they're called... Sparkle Motion. Yeah, and they're doing some little, you know, routine, but it's juxtaposed with... Him burning down down. Cunningham's house, and it's just perfect right there. But if he hadn't have done that, and Cunningham not gotten caught because the fire exposes this little secret room that he's got that the cops and the firefighters find, um, this one lady who's been one teacher who is like kind of the coach of Sparkle Motion wants to stay behind and rally that it's it's all bullshit, you know, that Jen Cunningham didn't have this, and it's just something to smear his name with or whatever. So she ends up asking Donnie's mom to take them. And that's the trip that they take on the airplane that when right. they're on their way home, it falls from their jet. So I feel like there's some, you know, full circle-ness yeah. inside of that. While they're having the party that they're gone from going to do that, there's a part where Donnie looks into one of those pathways that are coming out of these people. And I think at that moment when he looks in there, he realizes that what he needs to do and how to finish this thing. Okay. And that's when him and his girlfriend and his two buddies take off to go to Grandma Death's house. What? He's all disturbed and freaked out. Yeah, because he knows he's got very little time left, I think. I think him, it doesn't really say that, but I think him looking in there was that idea that he's, he's kind of seeing his own future there or what needs to happen. So they race to Grandma Death's house, um, and it's cool how they just go juxtapose the um, idea of the teacher talking about the most beautiful word is cellar door. Somebody said this. Some great yeah. linguist. Say that. Yeah, <laughs> not linguini. No, a linguini professional. Right. Uh, said that cellar door was the most beautiful word ever that could have been written in the history of language. And so they go to Grandma's death house and they're going into the cellar door. And they go down in there and they're kind of messing around. And then the two bullies of the entire film show up and they're robbing her, basically. They're looking for anything in there. And they grab Donnie and the girl and throw them down to the ground. And they got knives and they're basically going to kill them. And that's when Donnie yells, Deus Ex Machina, mm-hmm. because this car's coming. 
And one of the guys is like, he called the cops, he called the cops, let's get out of here. So as soon as that car is coming, he knows what's about to happen. Grandma Death standing in the middle of the road. Frank comes up, swerves out of the way. He even says, Donnie even says, uh, our savior. I think he says that he? little tiny line mm-hmm. after that. You can barely make that out, but yeah, I think he says that. And so, deuce ex machina, here it is, this, you know, force unseen that makes Grandma Death be in the middle of the road and Frank swerve out of the way and hit Gretchen who fell into the road. And it all just kind of comes together right there. It's pretty cool. I really, really enjoyed the movie because it's just so freaky and you've probably got to watch it like four or five times and get the director's cut to figure out. There's some deleted scenes in there too that hint to a lot of the stuff in the movie. A lot more of his dreams are in that movie. It shows a lot of... I think there's one scene in there in the regular movie where it shows buildings inside of a, there's like an ocean landscape and these buildings are just popping up out of the ocean for for no real reason and if you watch the director's cut it shows a lot more scenes of the ocean and his pupil and i don't know if that's like trying to dive into his consciousness or the peacefulness of the ocean or you know that there might be some sort of peace at the end of this thing I don't know, that's the great thing about it, is because I'm going to sit here and say all this bullshit about it, and you guys can go watch it and then go, oh, Braxis was totally wrong, it's about this and it's about that, and that's great, that's a good movie, that's that's a good movie where it doesn't give you all the farm at one time, you have to kind of pull on the thread. You have to think about it, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything? What'd you say? Donnie Darko. That's very, very good. Um, I think that's... That's Everything it. that I wanted to say about that. Um, so that's my number one pick. Donnie Darko. Very good times. Music, soundtrack. The acting in that's real good. A mm-hmm. uh, lot of good I actors the soundtrack in it. on Spotify. It is really good. You were right about Echo and the Bunnymen. Okay. That's the Killing Moon. Tears uh-huh. for Fears. The Church. Duran Duran. Oingo Boingo. Uh, Joy Division, again, Tears for Fears, the Thompson Twins. I don't know who Nick Kershaw is, but... I think that's the guy who ends up singing Mad World at the end of it. Um, okay. There's a lot of music on here. So Anyways, yeah. we don't have to get it all. Nope. So go check it out if you're into weird stuff, dreams, and whatnot. And see if you can figure it out. That's all I got. We're going to play another song, right? Yes, uh, another black market vinyl song. Called Monster. Take it away.
All right, so this is the section that we had some trouble with, and this is literally the third time that I'm trying to do this. I will be discussing my favorite movie for a good portion of it by myself, as I'm here alone trying to recreate what was discussed the first time we did this, and the computer completely ate about 30 minutes of recording. So later on you'll hear Braxis pop in, and for now, you just have me. My number one favorite witchy movie is The Wicker Man, but it is the 1973 version of this movie and not the Nicolas Cage version of this movie. Um, when I heard that it was going to be remade, I got really excited because I heard that Nicolas Cage really loved The Wicker Man and they were going to redo it. And I thought, that's my, one of my favorite movies. Great. And then I heard about a character uh, quality change and knew that they were going to completely destroy the movie and they did. So if the Nicolas Cage version with something about bees and a weird island where like dudes don't have tongues and it's like the women are like a hive of bees is the only version of The Wicker Man that you've seen. I'm going to ask you to completely erase that from your mind because that movie is trash. 1973 is amazing. This movie was billed as a horror movie back in the day. Um, I've heard that from my own teachers, uh, Gavin and, and Janet. We've watched this movie together, although the first time I saw the movie was about, gosh, I think it was either 1999 or 2000, and it was already over, obviously, 20-something years old then. Um, but it was billed as a horror movie back in the day, and the first thing that you see in the movie is a, a thank you to Lord Summerisle and the people of his island for the help in creating this film which is about their belief structure. So me, the big dork, goes and looks to see if there's <laughs> if there is a summer isle. <laughs> there is no island called Summer Isle off the coast of Scotland. But you know, that was dumb I checked. Um it starts out where we see this gentleman in church and he is up front reading, you know, the part of this Jesus's story about the Last Supper. Uh, very, very foretelling this talking of, of um, the symbols of his sacrifice, wine and, and, and the bread and, and all of that 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 is that I don't need to explain because everybody knows what that is. Um, a letter is received at the police department because this gentleman is a sergeant. And a postman brings a letter to the police department, gives it to, I guess would be equivalent to a, a deputy. And it's addressed from Summer Isle. Summer Isle is a very famous island in Scotland, in this movie anyway, um, for, and they're famous for their apples and the vegetables and the fruits that they grow, which is very uncommon for it to grow, for these things to grow in this climate. And the postman is curious if you know, Sergeant Howie has a girlfriend on that island. But what we find out from the deputy is that Sergeant Howie 
does not have a girlfriend on that island. He does have a girlfriend in town, but Sergeant Howie is the 40-year-old virgin. He's never so much as tickled his girlfriend's fancy, as we find out, and that quality about him is quite key. Um, these, this letter is anonymously addressed to the sergeant, and the deputy reads it to him, and it's describing a missing child. Uh, her name is Rowan Morrison, and the person who's written the letter has included her picture in there. Uh, tells the sergeant that no one has seen her and she's been missing from her home for many months. Her mother isn't saying anything about it, and he feels that a missing child is always uh, bad news and it's everyone's business, and so he's, allow he's notifying the police, or they are notifying the police. So Sergeant Howie gets in his plane, and it's like one of those watercraft planes that lands on the water and flies out to Summer Island. And when he gets there, he you know calls to the men in the harbor for a boat to come across, and, and they ask him if he's lost. He says, this is Summer Isle, you're right. Um, this is where I'm intending to land. And they tell him, well, you can't land here because you need written permission. And Sergeant Howie doesn't have any of that. And he's like, I'm a cop, basically. I don't care about your law or I don't need written permission from anybody. Send that boat out. And so they come to get him and he shows them this letter. Shows them the picture of the child. None of the men at the harbor know her and all insist that she doesn't belong to that island. Uh, but Mae Morrison, they know. And she keeps the post office. And so they're like, oh, yeah, we were no May. Sorry, forgot about her. Yeah, she's up at the post office. But that's not her daughter. And so whose daughter is she? And they just don't say anything. So he goes to the post office. It's the coolest post office in the world because Mae Morrison has it filled with candy and treats and chocolate hairs and uh, rabbits, you know, uh, dolls and, that are all made of candy and chocolate. And so he meets May Morrison, and she insists that that is not her daughter. Um, in fact, she introduces him to a child in the back of the post office, which is like their house, too. Um, and her name is Myrtle Morrison. Um, so you can see, she says, this is not the girl in the picture, and she's much younger than that girl, so this is our daughter. And the door rings and a new person comes into the post office, so May goes to help that person and Sergeant Howie starts to interrogate a child without, you know, a warrant or permission from the parents. And she's painting at her little art desk and she's painting a picture of, of you know, the March Hare. And Sergeant Howie asks Myrtle if she knows Ron. And Myrtle says, of course she does. And he says, you know, is she home? And she says, no. She runs and plays in the fields all day. And she has a lovely time. And Sergeant Howie asks if she'll be home for tea. And said, and Myrtle tells him she's would not be ever be home for tea because hares don't have tea. Rowan's a hare. He's quite confused. And then the mother comes back and offers the sergeant tea and gets him stopping talking to her daughter. From there, he goes on to the Green Man Inn, 
and it's this beautiful plaque on the front of this pub and of the green man's face and it's all ruckusy in there but everything dies down once this cop from the mainland shows up and he introduces himself to the innkeeper and asks for a room because he's going to be staying the night on the island and the, the landlord calls his his to his daughter who comes in from the back and uh this beautiful blonde comes in built real well if you know what i mean and he introduces her as his daughter willow and right there the, the people in the pub they just kick up this song uh, about the landlord's daughter and it's pretty racy and it's and it's basically talking about how everyone's had a piece of the landlord's daughter and you know she's not the type of girl you'd bring home to her mother or your mother and talk about her body parts and everyone thinks this is so funny including the landlord and including his daughter but not sergeant howie and he kind of gets all in a huff he's a very pious christian man you know so he stops the pub from singing lets them know he's not there for vacation he's in fact there because of a missing child passes that picture around nobody knows who she is so while he's waiting for his dinner he sees all these different photographs hanging on the wall in the pub behind the bar and there's a photograph for you know maybe 15 20 years going back and there's a young girl in each picture and she's surrounded by all of these fruits and vegetables and they look like harvest photographs but the one from the year before is not there on the wall and he asks after it what happened to that picture and the innkeeper tells him you know it got broke and just oddly moves on from there when he's having his dinner he complains because all of the food comes out of a can even to beans and Willow's like you know calm down food isn't everything in life you know she's totally coming on to him but he doesn't get it he then she asks him what he would like for dessert and he asks for an apple and she tells him they don't have any apples and he's all surprised because this is summer isle and after all this is the island of famous apples and she tells him they must all be exported and offers him peaches and cream which is again kind of tongue-in-cheek and he just says so oh, which probably comes out of a can right um that might be where she tells him food isn't everything in life to cheer up so the sergeant takes a walk after dinner and it's now dark and he's walking around and stumbles upon all of these young couples out in the fields and all of them are having sex ladies on top dudes on the bottom and he is just like what in the hell is going on he also passes by the cemetery and hears a woman crying and she's sort of straddled on this new grave and apparently it's insinuating that her partner who she would have been doing this with that night uh, has died so he goes back to the inn he is pissed he's not having it everyone's just partying in there and he just wants to go to bed and so his room is to the top of the stairs on the right and they've put him right next to 
where Willow sleeps. So as the sergeant is in his, you know, his button-down jammies, he hears someone out the windows calling to Willow McGregor. And he kind of peers out to watch, and this is the first time we see Lord Summerisle. And he's standing there with, um, I don't want to say a young boy, but a teenaged boy, maybe 16? And Willow comes to her window, and Lord Summer Isle introduces this young man as Ash Buchanan. And everybody here on this island has names that are like flowers or trees or months of the year. They're all nature names. So, so far we've met um, Willow and Rowan and Myrtle and May, and this is Ash Buchanan. And Lord Summerisle offers him, you know, to the goddess of love. And Ash makes his way inside of the pub to go up to her room. Um, Willow McGregor is probably in her late 20s. And so if there's anything that I have an issue about in this movie, it would be this particular piece. Um, I, I, I think that the writers of this movie did an amazing job in researching pagan traditions, uh, old religion traditions. Uh, this piece, I wonder if it came from writings of Gavin and Yvonne Frost from back in this time period, where even when I came into uh, witchcraft in the 90s, it was something that I was told to, that back in the day, you know, more experienced men and women would initiate the younger women and, and young men into these sexual rights uh, as if it was a good thing that they were learning from someone more experienced and I think that's a load of shit um, no 28 year old should be initiating a 16 year old child into uh, sexual mysteries ever it doesn't matter if it's a woman with a 16 year old boy or a man with a 16 year old girl should not happen. We're supposed to experiment with people our own age and learn together, not learn like that. Maybe in some way, like, oh yeah, he showed me all the things. It's fucked up. I don't like it. I get what they're doing here, and there's reasons for it, but that's my one little asterisk next to this movie is that is inappropriate. Um, anyway, as Ash is making his way through the pub, the raucousness of the pub completely stops and Ash continues to walk through and the music changes and the people in the pub begin a song called Gently Johnny and it's suggestive you know I put my hand on her thigh and she says do you want to try I put my hand on her belly and she says do you want to fill me I mean it's it is about sex, totally. It's beautiful. But everyone is singing this and really kind of uh, what I understand to be raising energy for this ritual that is going to happen upstairs. Um, there's even a focal point on the ceiling of what I assume upstairs would be, would be Willow's bedroom. 
there's like a poster on the ceiling and they all kind of looking at that poster and it's sort of directing their energy that they're raising to this this bedroom and to this sacred what they're considering sacred place um willow is not like you know she's like you surely to voice morale you mean it's uh, for the goddess of love not or for Aphrodite, not to Aphrodite. He says, I make no distinction. You are the goddess of love incarnate and, you know, enjoy him and blah, blah. So Sergeant Howie is hearing all of this go down and he is completely clutching his pearls the entire time because he hears them in the other room. He hears the music. This is get his Christian virgin hot, 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 you know, he's just out of his mind about it. Um, you know, covering his head with his blanket because so he's just so upset about what he's hearing. In the morning, we see Ash Buchanan crowning the maypole. And what I mean by crowning the maypole is that he's got a wreath and he's climbed up there and he's the one that puts the wreath on the maypole. Very, you know, wreath, greenery, round, big stick, put it together you know he just did that the night before um sergeant howie takes a walk through the village and asks willow you know in the morning where's the school and you know he figures i'm going to go to the school and see if these these school teachers have ever heard of rowan and so when he gets there it's you know this is two days before beltane uh now i think we are one day before beltane this new morning and Outside, all the young schoolboys are gathered around this giant maypole with red and white ribbons. And the teacher begins, the man teacher, he begins to sing a song about Summer Isle. And it's a song about these beautiful cycles. And it's, I'm not singing it, but in the woods there grew a tree, and a fine, fine tree was he. And on that tree there was a limb, and on that limb there was a branch, and on that branch there was a nest and in that nest there was an egg and in that egg there was a bird and from that bird a feather came and then it's all about Samarao and from that feather there was a bed and on that bed there was a girl and on that girl there was a man and from that man there was a seed and from that seed there was a boy and from that boy there was a man and for that man there was a grave and on that grave there grew a tree so it's talking about the cycles of life and death. It's also telling us that they plant trees on the graves on Samurai. All the boys have these ribbons tied around their waist and they're kind of like, you know, raising energy with their dancing, you know, their kind of little thrusty dance and then they're whipping those, those ribbons that kind of look like little spermatozoa, you know, <laughs> swimming. Um, and then they do the most amazing maypole dance that if I could get people to dance that well around a maypole maybe I could die happy but everybody has fun but they do the, the perfect maypole dance the girls on the inside of the school are kind of banging on their desks very like you know raising energy with Miss Rose their teacher and then she stops them so after now he's standing outside the door of the school now and she asks the girls what the maypole represents and they're all like, phallic symbol. And Miss Rose is like, yes, it's the phallic symbol. You know, the image of the penis that's 
um, venerated in religions such as ours, and again, Sergeant Howie, pearl-clutching meltdown because they're teaching this in school. And pulls the teacher aside and is like, I'm going to have this investigated, you know? This island is filled with, like, debauchery and, like, public displays of indecency and brawling in bars, and now I know it all comes from the crap you're teaching in this school. He then shows the picture around the classroom to the teacher, to all the girls. All the girls don't know, you know, who, who this girl in the picture is, but there's one empty desk in the room. And he says, whose desk is that? And the teacher says, no one. And he goes over to the desk and he opens it up, so those old-fashioned ones that lift open, and inside the desk is a nail that's driven into the wood and tied to that nail is a beetle. And the creepy girl next to the desk, like a weird girl in class, because every class has a weird girl, and she says, poor old thing. It just walks round and round until it gets tied up real tight. And all the girls in the class giggle. And Sergeant Howie, and I even, even me, like, what the hell are they doing with a beetle tied to a string nailed inside this empty desk? Uh, it makes sense later. And he's just like, what that? Why are you doing that? That's so gross. Um, he doesn't say it. I said that's so gross. He then wants to see the register for the class, and Miss Rose tells him, you need special permission from Laura Sedmerile to do that. And he's like, suck it, lady. <laughs> My words. You're, I'm going to arrest you if you don't give me these books. You're going to the jail on the mainland tonight. And so he starts to go through the register and finds Rowan Morrison's name and the fact that she lives at the post office in Miss Rose's books. And he really starts to freak out on the class, calling everyone liars, especially her. And she finally pulls him aside, sets the girls with their work, and their book is a... They have to open their workbooks to Chapter 5, The Rites and Rituals of May Day. And every time I hear her say that, I just wish I had that book even though the book doesn't exist. Um, finally, Miss Rose gets him outside and says, no one is lying to you. If she existed, we would know of her. And he's like, okay, so she doesn't exist. She's dead. And Miss Rose tells him, we don't use the word dead here. You know, when the life ends, we believe the soul moves on to, to the trees and to the plants and the birds and the animals. Um, this is what we believe and Sergeant Howie starts to question their beliefs. And Miss Rose is starting to try to explain to him that, you know, the children have a much easier time looking at death as if they become part of the natural world, as opposed to dead bodies that go into the ground and rot. And so Sergeant Harry wants to know where is the rotting body of Rowan Morrison. And she tells him, well, you know, where you'd expect it to be in the ground. And he says in the churchyard, and she's like, well, if it's not consecrated to Christian burial, then it may not be a churchyard. Goes back into her school. Sergeant Howie goes to the churchyard, begins to walk around and read the gravestones. And I remember one of them being, uh, here lies whoever protected by the ejaculation of serpents. <laughs> and if that is not even the most badass tombstone, 
I don't even know what is. Um, walking around, he sees a semi-fresh grave with a tree growing on it, a very new young little sapling tree. And there's a dude there who's like mowing the lawn and he asks, you know, what kind of tree is this? And the cemetery keeps her, keeper tells him, it's a rowan. And then Sergeant Howie says, who's buried here? And the cemetery keeps, keeper tells him, Rowan Morrison. And there's, you know, a weird, like, looks like a really skinny piece of bacon hanging on the tree, and he questions that. And the cemetery keeper tells him that that's her umbilical cord, you know, because where else would you put it but on her own little tree? So again, you see a little tradition of umbilical cords hung in these trees that are planted on graves as this like connection to life to life. Um, Sergeant Howie asks after their ministers and the cemetery guard just walks away laughing because they don't have ministers. It is not a Christian island. Um, after that, he goes back to the post office thinking, all right, lady, like, I know this is your daughter, but he sees Mae Morrison there with little Myrtle who has a sore throat. And she's convincing Myrtle to put this little toad in her mouth and hold it there for about three to five seconds and then pulls the toad out and says, you know, like, now he's got your little sore throat. She gives her a little candy and then asks, you know, Sergeant Howie, you know, can I help you? And he says, no, seeing as you're all crazy. And he just leaves there. He figures, all right, let me go find the doctor of the island. He inquires about where is Rowan's death certificate. Doctor's really rude and tells him, you of all people should know that that's in the public record. He asks how Rowan died. The doctor tells him she was burned to death. He goes to the public record. The girl there tells him, the librarian says, you can't access this unless you have written permission from Lord Sorrel. And again, he threatens with her with arrest and being placed into jail on the mainland. So he pushes his way into that, goes through the public record. There's no death certificate from Rowan. He goes to the photographer slash chemist because of that missing picture in the green man. And he shows the picture to the photographer who takes all the pictures of all the events and happenings on the island. And the photographer is an old guy. He doesn't really remember last year. Doesn't know if that was the girl in the picture. Um, and, and Lord um, Sergeant Howie is just, you know, doesn't know what to do anymore. And now finally he decides he's gonna go see Lord Semarau. After all of this time, it's full like, full 24 hours that he's been there and he's not gone to, you know, pretty much gone to see the quote-unquote king. On his way up there, by little horse and buggy, he sees a ritual. And in this ritual, there are young women, I would say probably 21 and over, 21 to, you know, 25-year-old girls, dancing in a circle around a bonfire in this stone circle with Miss Rose, the teacher at the school for the little girls, acting as priestess for this ritual. And they're all singing about the fire and they're singing about the baby. And 
the fire making the baby strong and making the baby stick and making the baby sing and making the baby cry. And they're all dancing around together and each one of them is jumping over the flames. Um, the buggy brings him to this incredibly huge, beautiful mansion um, estate home. And he's brought inside by uh, Broom, is the Lord Samarell's uh, man, manservant. And he's watching from the window, watching these girls jumping over the bonfire. And finally we meet again, Lord Summerisle. And he says, you know, I trust that you are enjoying the watching the young people. And Sergeant Howie is a good matter of fact, I'm not. Uh, you know, what are they doing naked, dancing around the um, bonfire? And Lord Summerisle tells them that they're learning about uh, parthenogenesis, you know. Um, Reproduction without sexual union. And Sergeant Howie is like, this is total crap. They're jumping over a bonfire's naked. And, and Lord Summerall says one of the funniest lines in the movie. And he's like, well, it's much too dangerous to jump over the fire with your clothes on. <laughs> um, I love that line. There's a bunch of lines in here that are really good in this first meeting between the two of them. How, you know, the... Sergeant Howie is insisting that they're teaching fake science, you know. Um, this is not how we reproduce. This is not how it's done. You're not going to have the, the baby of a, of a fire god. And Lord Summerisle's response is, you know, Jesus was himself the son of a virgin, impregnated by a ghost. Sergeant Howie has nothing to say about that. Um, they sit down because Sergeant uh, how he would absorb some of the shock with his knees bent, is what Lord Summerall tells him. And he starts to talk a little bit about their beliefs, but Sergeant Howie is just like, well, you know, what of the true God? You know, the God to who, you know, all those churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for hundreds of years. And Lord Summerall tells him, you know, he's dead. He had his chance and he blew it. And again, pearl clutching, Sergeant Howie is outraged. But Lord Summerall really doesn't get bothered by him. And here is the part where we tell, where we learn a bit more of the history of the island. And we learn that Lord Summerall's grandfather came to the island in the mid-Victorian era. So you're thinking, you know, 1830s, I think. If I'm wrong, you know, you know, let me know in my, in our, on, on the Facebook page. But around that time, 30s, 40s maybe, um, his grandfather was a Victorian scientist and an agronomist, um, and he knew that there was a warm uh, jet stream of water that would go through there. Um, the soil quality could have um, supported some of these new cultivar that he was working on. The people of that island were barely getting by with um, working the sea and, and uh, working sh with sheep as, as shepherds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's my phone. Um, mostly they started to work with the original Lord Summerisle because he was feeding them and clothing them. And so they were going to do it. But when everything bloomed and their harvests were amazing, it became wait a minute, 
we are going to work with these. He's the one that brought back the drama and the rituals of the old gods. And now instead of just working with the old gods because this guy who feeds us says we should, they realized the old gods are alive and we're going to ditch our old ways. And everyone became like these reconstructionists of the old pagan religions. Um, what we hear from Lord Summerisle that Sergeant Howie should have paid more attention to was the kind of the last thing he says to him in this meeting is that his father then also was raised like this and taught him the same things taught him the reverence to reverence the music the drama and the ritual of the old gods to love nature and to fear it and to rely on it and to appease it when necessary. But also, all Sergeant Howie hears and cuts off Lord Summerisle and says, he raised you to be a pagan. And Lord Summerisle, like I said, is played with by Christopher Lee, who many people today would know as Lord Sauron from the Lord of the Rings trilogies. But that young Christopher Lee turns to him with a little smirk that is just the most beautiful thing and says, a heathen conceivably but not, I hope, an unenlightened one. And then he said in Sergeant Howie, on his way with approval to dig up Rowan Morrison's grave, to exhume her body so that he can figure out how she died and what's going on. And so there Sergeant Howie goes and the middle of the night with the cemetery keeper and they dig up this grave and haul this coffin you know out of the ground and they crack that thing open and the cemetery guy is creepy and he just starts laughing and then we see into the grave and there's not a body of a little girl in there there is the body of a dead hare, like the big March hare. And Sergeant Howie, you know, the next thing we know is he's back at Lord Summerisle's and he's got this hare with him and throws it on the blanket in front of Lord Summerisle and Miss Rose, who's there spending the evening with the Lord of the Land. So, yeah, how he is freaking out about this hair that he's found in this, what's supposed to be this little girl's grave. And he throws it on the carpet in front of Miss Rose and Lord Summerisle. And he's all like, I, I found that in Rowan Morrison's grave. Um, <laughs> so weird because Lord Summerall goes, Little Rowan loved the March hares. Like that, like, what are you talking about? We found a rabbit, I thought it was a dead body. This little Rowan, and, and Miss Rose basically tells him that she thinks that this is a lovely transmutation. Rowan would be very happy with this. You know, like, she turned her into a rabbit. And he's like, how he is can't, he's about to have like a, like a panic attack meltdown because again, this is impossible. Where is Rowan Morrison? He's gotten real loud and 
big giant Christopher Lee stands up like you're not gonna, you know, get loud, get my loud house. up in my in my house, my bro, not my crib. Um, and eventually, he he says to he, when every time I watch it, and I watched it this last time, I feel like, for some reason, when when Lord Summerall says to him, "What could you possibly think happened?" I feel like he's trying to see what does he know, what... He's sort of telling us, too, what do you think happened here? It's obviously this little girl's body can't be really have become a, a rabbit, a hare. And, and Howie basically tells him, I think, that there's, you know, pagan barbarity and sacrifice that I can't believe is happening in the, in the 20th century. And I'm going home tomorrow, and I'm bringing more cops, and uh, we're going to do a full investigation of this island and everybody that lives here. And Lord Summerall tells him that that's probably a very good idea. You probably should go home. I don't think that you would really like, you would much enjoy our Beltane celebrations. And that sort of, you know, sticks out to Howie that, what are you guys going to be doing? You know, why are you trying to tell me I should leave? Um, the next, that night, he breaks into the chemist's office because the chemist is also the, the photographer of the island. And the photographer didn't recognize the picture of Rowan. And the photographer apparently took those harvest photographs. And maybe he's got it. Maybe there's a clue there, you know. And so he finds the 1972 harvest photograph and develops it and prints it and sees that Rowan is the harvest maiden. And as compared to the other harvest photographs, there is barely any produce. And he realizes that the crops must have failed last year. And so what does the old religion say about crop failure? In the morning, he goes to the library and starts to look into it and finds that in days past, if there was crop failure, there were different options that people would do. One of them being harvest, uh, sacrificing the harvest maiden, um, sacrificing the king, or sacrificing uh, a, a, a strange figure, you know, the fool, the king for a day. And so he realizes that Rowan must not be dead and is hide and there she's hidden someplace, and then he's going to have to find her. Um, he goes to leave, like he said, and start up his plane and fly away, but his plane doesn't work anymore. And uh, doesn't he accuse them of messing with his? Yes, plane? You, you know, has anybody been here? And and the har the harbor master who first said, you know, you need special permission to land here, tells him no one's been out here. I'd have seen them. Um, he, threat he tells him that you're obstructing a police officer. He's all like, I am not obstructing you. Oh, have a sip. Um, none of the children were out there, and you could get this dude over here to row you back to the mainland, but it'll take you a week. So he just decides that he's going to go, and he's going to look for Rowan all by himself. Tinkle, tinkle. Um, he busts into everybody's house. No search warrants, nothing. Tearing everybody's stuff up, looking for Rowan. Looking for Rowan, can't find her. Um, oh, I messed up. Oops. I did. I forgot a very something very very important well, why that don't happened. You rewind and hit that point. I am rewinding. Oh, okay. rewind. Do it. Um, <laughs> after he broke into the chemist and printed that picture, he went back to the inn and went to bed. And when he was laying there, he heard a little scuffling outside his door and a little knock. And he heard Rowan, the innkeeper's daughter, say his name and he go into her. I thought it was Willow. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you're correct. 
Willow. Willow McGregor. Call his name and go into her room and close the door. And the people in the pub downstairs start to play that same song when Ash went up for his sexual initiation. Um, yeah. And they start to sing again and they're playing music and Rowan is singing. And she's singing Who? this... Sorry, why do I keep doing that? Willow is singing. The other tree girl is singing. And is stark raven naked and is dancing. Body double. Yeah, it's a total... What's funny is uh, the frontal of, like, Britt Eklund and her boobs is totally Britt Eklund. But when you get a back shot of her booty, that is totally not her. So I don't know if she she was okay with showing... (laughs) The breasts, but not her ass. <laughs> Back in college, she got a weird tattoo there. She went, Maybe. Exit only. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so she does this whole dance and raising energy, and, and it's affecting Howie, you know, this 40-year-old virgin, and he's he's pressed up against the door and pressed up against the wall that is shared with her room and sweating and opens the door but shuts it again and is really having, like, this, this hard, like fight within himself or whether or not he should go in there or not and she's trying and trying and trying and is singing a very sexually laced song and how he he pushes himself away from the wall and the door and and falls into the bed and the next thing we see is is the sun coming up and and this now Beltane day um, this is where he goes and then researches everything, won't start the plane, decides to find him himself. He cannot find her, and he goes for a nap at the inn. And they're like, oh, we thought you were going home today. You know, you tired? You need a drink. And he just is very rude, goes and lays down. And Willow and her father are outside Howie's door, and he can hear them, and he's pretending he's sleeping. And they're saying, like, they, they, they've got to get him to stay here. He really shouldn't come to this this ritual that they're going to do. Um, and she's got something she's hiding, and, and she puts it in his room and says that that's going to make you sleep. And it's actually a hand of glory, which is a, a real chopped-off dead person's hand that's like all the fingers are on fire. And, you know, like, oh, my God! And he, and he knocks it off his, his dresser and puts the fire out. Um, I don't know that a hand of glory was ever supposed to keep someone sleeping, but maybe they were just trying to scare him. Um, he, the innkeeper tells his daughter, you know, you guys have got a, a head start. I'll meet you there, and it's got to get changed. And um, they separate. And Howie gets up and knocks out the innkeeper and takes his costume and puts it on and ties the innkeeper up to the base of his bed and leaves him there. And who was he playing? What costume did he steal? He steals the, f- the costume of the fool. Ba ba ba. Bring, bring. And so now they're on the procession to the ritual grounds. Uh, you have everybody wearing animal masks, and there's you know horn and trumpet players and the six swordsmen, which he did read about in his research. Um, that the six swordsmen behead the maiden or the king, you know, for the sacrifice. And they're doing these cool, like, dances, and they've got kilts on, real Scottish. Um, and they get to that stone circle where the girls were dancing and jumping over the fire to get pregnant by the god of the fire. Um, and all the six swordsmen lace their swords together, and everyone starts to chant, chop, 
chop and everyone has to go every single person in the community has to go in a line and each one of them puts their heads between these swords as a potential willingness to be sacrificed it's a very very cool scene i really i love it i love it i really thought that that was the end there's some suspense building oh yeah yeah Yeah. um and 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 lord samurai who's dressed as this a uh, weird character that's sort of like a lady death you know he's holding flowers and and a small handheld bowling or scythe and he's got a long black wig on and his face is sort of painted sort of deathly and he's dancing at the beginning of this procession there's the hobby hoss and there's the fool and he and he and he says you know that they all you know pretending that they i think they're pretending that they think that's the innkeeper and they say you know you got to get in there too everybody has to go through and 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 how he puts his head through but they don't like he gets through it too and finally a character with a, a girl with a big rabbit head on goes through and the, and the swordsman chop her head off and it startles everyone and she falls to the ground but it then miss rose unveils her and it's one of the young girls and it's you know a symbolic sacrifice and they all happily go down to the sea and they make an offering to the god of the sea with these big barrels of mead, asking for his continued blessings and, you know, fruits of his kingdom. And then <laughs> Lord Samarail says it's time for their more dreadful sacrifice. And these horns and trumpets start, and there's Rowan up on the mountainside in front of a cliff, dressed in white with a wreath of flowers on her head and tied up. And Howie goes running. And they're like, what's the matter, Mr. McGregor? And, you know, he punches that dude out, unties Rowan. She's yelling and screaming about how she doesn't like it there. You know what they're going to do. And he says, I know, we've got to run. And she takes him into the cave to run through there and tells him, I know the way. And they run through and they're being chased by dudes. And there's really funny, bad 70s guitar music (laughs) that Uh you have to kind of like just grit your teeth through. But uh, they end up climbing up through a hole in the ceiling of the cave and they come out on these cliffs like you're not getting off these cliffs at all and sitting out there now dressed in his normal clothes not looking like this harvest maiden of death or whatever is lord summerisle miss rose that priestess the innkeeper's daughter willow and another character not mentioned the librarian another priestess and they're all just sitting there waiting and rowan is all smiling and she says, did I do it right? And runs to Lord Samurai and he's like, you did it beautifully and hugs her and, and how he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And neither did you, you know, like neither did I like what? Uh, okay. They're not going to sacrifice her. Entrapment. Yeah. What's happening? And, and there's the lady from the post office, like Rowan darling. And she goes running off. Like it is her mother. He, she were lying. But what's happening? And they, Lord Summerall finally tells Howie, he says, you know, the game is up. And Howie's like, what are you talking about? What game is happening? He's so confused. And he tells him, you know, this is the game of the hunted, hunting the hunter. You know, you were here hunting for this girl, but we're the ones that brought you here. We researched you. You're the perfect sacrifice. 
and he has no idea what they're talking about. Like, what do you mean on the, you know, kind of the perfect sacrifice? And they tell him, you've come here of your own free will. They gave him ample times from the moment he landed to leave and told him he had to be there for special permission. Even the post office lady said, you, go home. You're butting into things that you don't understand. And you don't understand, because he's like, they're going to kill your daughter. You know this is your daughter earlier. And she's like, you don't understand the true nature of sacrifice. You know, and he's all frustrated and calls her a terrible mother. Um, and they, they tell him, you are here of your own free will, which he is. You come here with the power of a king by representing the law. You're a virgin. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and that's the part about Nicolas Cage's version that I don't like. Because when I heard Nicolas Cage wasn't going to be a virgin, oh my you, you are now going to fuck it up. <laughs> You're going to fuck it up because that is such an important part. Besides the fact that he's also there as a fool. So you're the king for the day. And who but a fool would want to be a king for a day? And who but a fool would want to be a virgin until 40? Well, that's true, too. So he is all these things in one body, you know? And, and that whole scene with Willow, where she is trying to get him to come in there, and they're all raising energy in the pub. If he had just gone in there and sacrificed something that he has held onto as a sacred thing of his own virginity to her, that would have been enough. They could have used that, but he didn't do it. So he's like, I'm leaving. You guys are fucking crazy. Not in those words, but he tries, and the big giant guy named Oak throws his ass to the ground, and they're like, you're not going anywhere. You know, you're, you're not. You're, you're the sacrifice, and, this, and he starts to scream about, I know what's going on. I know your crops failed. And Lord Summerisle says, yeah, they did. They failed. It was a disaster. And this can never happen again. And so we had to find the best sacrifice that we could come up with, and that's you. And they strip him of his clothes. They wash him. He's freaking out. All the people from Summerisle now gathering on the cliffs and coming down with their animal masks on. And it's creepy as fuck. But you like the people of Summerisle. And that's when you talked about Midsummer. You know, I felt like these are real weird Swedes, and I don't know anything about them, and I don't like them, and I don't like these kids either, but you love these people of Summer Isle. They're really quite cool, you know? And he's, Howie is flipping out, saying that he believes in basically life eternal and Jesus, and they tell him, well, we're about to give you a, you know, a very rare gift, and, you know, you'll be... You're going to have a martyr's death, and you're going to sit with the elect next to the saints and with Jesus. You'll be one of the 40, 100, Yeah, like that. You know, you're, there will be resurrection, but it's going to be, you know, our apples, not you. You know, sorry about that. Um, he kind of breaks free a little bit of them and tells them, like, you guys have to like, stop. This is murder. You know, there is no goddess of the orchards, and there is no god of sun. You know, this is, you know, this is not true. And all the people start to hum. And it's kind of creepy. They're all, like, humming. Like, we don't listen to you, <laughs> you know? And he, he tells them, you know, if this doesn't work, you're going to have to have another blood sacrifice. And next year, Lord Summerisle, your people will kill you on May Day. And Lord Summerisle, Christopher Lee, is like, it will work. I know it will work. Um... 
he's just like, let's go. You've got a date with, he tells me you have a date with the wicker man. And like, we're all like, what's the wicker man? What's the wicker man? And Oak kind of ties him up by his hands and they drag him up the hillside. And then you see the wicker man. And that thing's got to be, I don't know, 50 feet tall. It's huge. It's a man made of wicker wood. It's filled with animals, which kind of sucked, like, I guess, additional gifts, right? But there's all animals up in there, and he starts to freak the fuck out. And it's uncomfortable. It's like, all Lord and all this Jesus Christ stuff, you know? Even after he finds out, they have to wash his body and stuff like that. And I thought that was... He knows what's happening, and it's going on, and he did a good job of oh, yeah. reacting to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, like, he, just seeing that, he's petrified. And and Oak carries him up there, and they put him in, and they, they kind of lock him in this wooden structure. And while Howie is shouting and, and with all these prayers directed at the people from, you know, from the Bible... Lord Semerile is leading the people and saying what they need to say, you know, mighty God of the sun, beloved goddess of our orchards, you know, accept the sacrifice and make our blossoms fruit. And everyone says that. And the look on Christopher Lee's face when he says, reverence the sacrifice. I mean, I've read a lot about the movie, and Christopher Lee was super into this movie, but the look on his face is not the look of, yay, we're going to kill someone. It's like, we're going to kill somebody right now. Reverence, this, this, is, not, this is serious, you know? And then <laughs> he sort of drops his arm, and they light the bottom fire. And then they start up the band, you know? And the, and the energy totally shifts. And they sing this song called Summer is a Comin'. And it's one of the earliest English songs that they have on record. And all the people are doing this arm motion of like, of, of, like of, they're holding a scythe and cutting down the grain. And they're all singing. And, and Howie's in this structure that's starting to burn and he's singing the Lord is my shepherd. So you have these two religions like face to face there. And he starts to talk to God. and begs forgiveness for dying unshriven, which I think means dying not without the rights of death. And he's sort of like, I'm coming to, basically coming to you, and it's, and, and it's like, kind of starts screaming. All these animals are screaming. It's really, like, upsetting. But that thing goes up like a, a giant bonfire, and the shot that they get, totally not planned from this, like, the timing was as that wicker man goes down, the sun is just like an inch over the sea. You know, so the sun is setting and you just it just ends on this scene of the sun. And I've showed this to people and I've had people have really negative reactions to it. And I know it's it's fucked up and it's kinda sad, but the reason it becomes my number one is to me, it is a movie of walking your talk. I just wanted to say something about that last scene. It's got this juxtaposed this guy's dying and fire and, and death and then these townspeople who are all kinds of happy and 
<laughs> there goes the dog and the cat. And, you know, celebrating, basically. Yeah. 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 And I feel like they very well could have sacrificed Rowan, and no one would have been any the wiser. No one from the mainland would have ever known, and everybody on this island is of the same belief structure and understanding. Even the mother of that girl knew that, that, that like this was going to happen. And said, stop interfering with things that you don't understand, that have none of your business, and you don't understand the true nature of sacrifice. If she was going to give her daughter for the betterment of everybody, and had Howie gotten on the plane or said, oh, so I don't have permission to be here, you know, Rowan would have died. But if they're going to do this, let's have the best sacrifice we possibly could so that we don't ever have to do it again. If they started this revival of a reconstructionist pagan religion where people were sacrificed for harvests, and they say that that's what they believe, they've been there mid-Victorian era, so it's been about a hundred years, that they've never ever had to do this. They've had all these blessings, blessings, blessings. And Lord Summerall says, you know, to go back to what he said there, to reverence nature, to fear it, to appease it when necessary, all of their lives would change. They would go back to being barely able to sustain their lives on this. So if we're going to have to find somebody who is like a virgin, who has the powers of the king, who is like a fool, and who is here willingly, and every time they told him to leave, he continued to stay. And so while I'm not saying that my belief structure says, if my fucking garden doesn't <laughs> you know, grow this year, maybe I should make a human sacrifice, but I think it's a lesson to really understand what your belief structure is, what your ethics are, and it's, you know... And there are other things to sacrifice. There are definitely other things to sacrifice, including his virginity to the goddess of love incarnate. So they even gave an opportunity of that. And so while I'm not building a wicker man and putting a person in it, I just think it's super, super, super... Besides the symbolism... That's amazing. It really kind of gets down to know your religious structure, your spiritual structure inside and out, and be okay with standing on your convictions if you have to do something, like cursing someone, hexing someone. I don't do that on the regs, you know? But if I am going to go by a beef tongue, there's going to be a reason, and I'm going to, and I have to live a pretty clean life and be a pretty decent person and be okay with what I'm doing so that when I stand in front of Hecate or whoever else, I, that I can stand on my convictions of why I did it and never make an oath to something that I wouldn't be able to follow up on. So hopefully the people of Summer Isle never had to build another Wicker Man because they showed the gods we found the best sacrifice make our blossoms fruit well they needed a whole movie production team to make that so what oh they totally did but you know that they could have done it they could have done it and that's one of the things like reconstructionist religions you know there are reconstructionist paths out there and I'm not going to say anything like oh I would you know there's Egyptian I tried that once it's really hard to to do a comedic reconstructionist religion because they were 24-7 in the temple and we are not living that life anymore so it just didn't work for me um but 
Yeah. I can watch that movie every day and it'd be okay. And I hope whoever likes The Wicker Man nerded out with me on that one. I, I liked The Wicker Man too. I did. I, it probably wouldn't have been on my list, but I did like it. And that's okay. Just, just throwing that out there. <laughs> so as we close out this episode we're going to give Braxis a moment to name his honorable mentions because he struggled with this list <laughs> and I'm just going to run right through him here I think there might be one that you will, will go oh my god that movie mm -hmm. uh, Altered States Serpent in the Rainbow Time Bandits Dune the old version not the new version or the series that's come out uh, Blade Runner, the old version, Valhalla Rising, Legend. Yeah. You like Legend. That, that was on my honorable mention list. Uh, Lady Hawk, which is, has some hilarious 80s synthesizer music in it, but still a good movie. Um, Lord of the Rings, of course. A Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the movie, The Fourth Kind. Yeah. Yeah, that I thought you would be... That will haunt my nightmares for the rest of my life. Yeah, after you see that, everything's stupid. stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything. Um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And I know these weren't super weird, because there are weirder ones out there, like Naked Lunch, Titus, The Holy Mountain, but the, some of those don't have much of a, a plot that you can kind of follow. So these were the movies that I felt like at least had plots that we could follow. I'd also like to give a shout out to Chloe. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you're doing well and you have unscrewed the screws. <laughs> um, our last song. Another Black Market Vinyl song. My favorite on that album. Preacher's Son. Yeah, Preacher's Son, Preacher's Son. Title track. Indeed. And then... The last thing that uh, we wanted to mention is we're done with the movies now. So now we move on to the topic of trance work and ritual, the ins and outs of that, and hopefully we'll have our first... <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't mess with the dog's ears when I'm doing that. Um, our first interview for the Witches in the Trenches. Or maybe pagans in the pits. I'm not sure. What if they don't identify as a I witch? I see what you did there. You know, I like that? You like that? We'll have that first segment and that first interview. So, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs> Keep it burning. Yeah. Give me oil in my lamp. I pray. Hallelujah. <laughs> Yeah.